With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. I'm your host, Joy Keys. I want to thank you so much for tuning in. You can follow me on Twitter at Joy Keys. Also, you can check me out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys, and on Instagram, Saturdays with Joy Keys. On Facebook, I'll let you know, we have a page and there's a group. The group is like people can talk, you know, about the shows or questions or comments. And I also think because of their, you know, how they block things, the group gets announcements faster than the actual page. Weirdest thing. But anyway, if you miss a show, you can check us out on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, Google, as well as here at Blog Talk Radio. So, again, if you think you missed something or you want to go back, just look up the show's name and, and we're on those different platforms. Well, this morning, I, I don't know if you went to McDonald's or not to get your sandwich because in Philadelphia it's snowing and it's like quiet as I don't know what, but I'm speaking with someone who wrote a whole book about McDonald's and the African-American community. She's a professor of history and African-American studies at Georgetown University in Washington, D.C., Previously, she was a Reach for Excellence Assistant Professor of Honors in African-American Studies at the University of Oklahoma in Norman. She's a native of Chicago, and she's even a prouder graduate of a lot of schools, but she has a PhD, so she's a doctor. Uh, She is a scholar of African-American life and culture. Her first book was titled Southside Girls Growing Up in the Great Migration, Reimagined the Mass Exodus of Black Southerners to the urban north from the perspective of girls and teenage women. Hmm, see, you, you never think about that. Like, it's always like the male, even his historical stuff, they got the male in the center. So she got a book about women, so you want to check that out. Her latest book is called Franchise, The Golden Arches in Black America. It is a Pulitzer Prize winning book. So I'm going to be giving away some copies so that you can educate yourself about the golden arches in the black community. Good morning, Dr. Marcia Chaitlin. Good morning. It's such a pleasure to be here. And next time I'll hook you up with your egg McMuffin. Sorry about that. <laughs> I totally like got on her before the show started. I was like, did you bring the McMuffin sandwich? And she's like, what? I'm like the McDonald's sandwich. <laughs> and she's like, uh, no. And I'm like, you wrote a whole book about it? They they couldn't give you some giveaways or something? I mean, it's publicity <laughs> for them. <laughs> so, okay, one of the things we did talk about, I said, in reading a whole book about McDonald's, she does mention other franchises, I got hungry for McDonald's and thought about the, the breakfast sandwich, which I haven't had in eons, like years, literally. Um, so you might have that experience. But let's let's just start at the beginning. Uh, why this story? You went from girls in the Great Migration to franchise McDonald's. How? What was the catalyst for writing this book? 
Well, first of all, thank you for um, having this conversation with me about the book. So essentially, I am, you know, a scholar of black life and culture, and I think that the best way to talk about the importance of black history is to find um, concepts or find institutions where everyone has an idea of them, right? Everyone has a sense that they know about this and really provide that extra element. And for me, I've always been interested in the ways we talk about groups that are on the margins, whether it's young girls and teenage women or, you know, the ways that we talk about health and food. And what got me interested in this project was I would hear a lot of people talking about obesity and, um, you know, hypertension and diabetes in black communities. And they would often say, you know, the food was the culprit, you know, black people do too much of X, Y, and Z. But I never really heard anyone talk about the conditions in black communities that have exacerbated this inequality in terms of health and, you know, resources. And so I wanted to put a historical understanding on why are there so many fast food restaurants in black communities and when I took a step back to find that story, it was mind-blowing because it isn't just about random businesses and random neighborhoods. It's very much tied to ideas about the civil rights struggle and America after King's assassination in 1968. And it's also about, like, real estate, you know, and the money. And that's something mm-hmm. that you come back to in the book, the dollar, the almighty dollar. Um, and... I mean, I hate to say it. I remember reading about the the guy uh, who started McDonald's, and they said it was really about real estate. Can you tell us about the guy, Ray Kroc? Some of the audience may not be familiar with him. Yeah, so Ray Kroc is considered, you know, the person who brought McDonald's from its, you know, roots in Southern California and the McDonald's brother burger stand to the national and global business that we know it today. So Ray Kroc was a man from Illinois who was selling milkshake um, mixers and learned about this place called McDonald's that was just doing a wild amount of business, like unheard of business in the fast food industry. And he bought the concept and brought it to Illinois and started franchising McDonald's. And for those of you who are in this business, you know it very well, but for those of you who are unfamiliar, franchises are essentially – the right to operate a business and you have these agreements with the corporate head and what Ray Kroc did, which was really smart is he didn't just have people sign up to open the franchises. He bought the real estate in which McDonald's was built. And so a lot of people in the business sector would say that McDonald's is a real estate company that happens to sell hamburgers. And he really brought McDonald's, into the, you know, world that we know it today of fast food. Now, where did, uh, when, I should say, did McDonald's get connected with the African-American community? And where, I can say where, I can say both, yeah. (laughs) You know, McDonald's starts franchising in the 1950s, and, you know, what starts to happen is that Ray Kroc was very much all about the suburbs um, he was all about imagining his his restaurants to be places where white families and suburbs would go and have a meal. But by the late 60s, a few things had happened. One, neighborhoods that had been predominantly white were starting to change their racial demographics because of white flight, which many of us are familiar with. 
But what was also happening was, you know, with all of the uprisings of the 1960s, a lot of people were starting to wonder how can we address all of the racial inequality and the racial violence that was happening in the United States. And while people like Dr. King said, well, I know the answer, you need to start paying livable wages, have a real, you know, system of justice out here, and we have to end police brutality, other people said, well, we don't know if we're going to see that, but what we could do is start offering more opportunities for black. And so after King was assassinated, and again, the country was witnessing these really difficult uprisings, um, McDonald's decided that they were going to start to recruit black franchise owners. And in that recruitment process, they were able to hold on to stores in neighborhoods that were moving from white to black, but more importantly, they were able to more aggressively go into black neighborhoods because they had these black franchise owners who could be the face of the business in front of people who really, really wanted to start supporting black businesses and wanted to have, you know, black-owned businesses to patronize. Can you tell the audience who Herman Petty is? Yes. So the first um, black franchise McDonald's was in Chicago, my hometown, and a man named Herman Petty had been recruited to reopen a black, uh, reopen a McDonald's that a white franchise owner didn't want to be part of anymore. And, you know, like a lot of systems, and this even continues today, and there have been some fights between black franchise owners and McDonald's, you know, they were allowed to enter a system where very few black people had access to that kind of opportunity, but they did it at a serious disadvantage. You know, these black-owned McDonald's um, locations were sometimes really beat up. Um, Sometimes they didn't have the same kind of resources. There were problems in recruiting. Sometimes they were in gang territory. And so he was very successful in opening that McDonald's and then opening another one. But he and other black franchisees really felt left out of the larger McDonald's system. Now, they have to pay, like, fees and fines, and they pay uh, money, correct, if I'm correct, to McDonald's for advertisements. What was the problem Mm -hmm. that was happening with the black franchises versus the white franchises, How, how they did not benefit from paying this fee? So basically what happens when you own a franchise is you pay fees to the corporate company, you have to use their suppliers, and you also pay into a fund for advertising. And so in the late 1960s and early 70s, when these black franchise owners were getting into the system, they were being, you know, doing really well, they realized that they were paying into a um, uh, an advertising fund, but those advertisements weren't hitting the outlets where black customers were. So they weren't in Ebony, they weren't in Jet, they weren't, you know, being broadcast during um, programming that was targeted towards black audiences. And so what the National Black uh, McDonald's Franchise Association did was they reached out to McDonald's and they convinced them to hire Burrell Communications, also based in Chicago, to do ads that really targeted the black community. And if you grew up in, you know, in the United States in the 70s, 80s, and into the early 90s, you remember those ads that were the black McDonald's ads. It's like the black State Farm ad or the black Coca-Cola ad. You know, you remember those ads that featured black families, black culture, 
And that was really, really important in bringing, again, McDonald's to the consumer consciousness of black consumers. You mentioned um, Burrell. Uh, I, I want to bring him up later in the book. But before Burrell, let's talk about Martin Luther King and the placemats. Uh, Martin Luther King and phrases being used and his face being used. One, how did they get the rights to do that? Um, and, and tell the audience why they were doing that. So in many ways, you know, it's so interesting, like now growing up, um, you know, thinking about, you know, my son and, you know, young school age kids who will grow up with an image of Martin Luther King Jr. as a hero because so many people, you know, reviled him in his time. And shortly after his death, you know, Martin Luther King's image was used for a number of purposes. And in this instance, you know, a lot of people were trying to say that franchising would be an extension of King's dream or a realization of King's dream. And many of the black franchise owners, you know, they commemorated King in their businesses in a number of ways. And eventually, after Ronald Reagan signed the Martin Luther King Jr. federal holiday into law, you started to see a lot of McDonald's-sponsored content with King's image, um, mini documentaries, sometimes they would have Black History Month calendars in some markets. And I think that the, you know, the great irony of it is that I'm not entirely sure King would have been with the ways that the fast food industry operates, both as an employer and a presence in black communities. But the idea that, you know, this type of black progress is tied to King was very pervasive, you know, right after his death. And I think we still see um, examples of it today. There's a lot of shadiness. Well, you try to be even-handed in the book. But there are some questionable things that happen. And one of the things you bring up is this guy, Ernest Hilliard, um, and he was uh, working with uh, the mayor to try to get a McDonald's deal. Can you tell the audience what happened, Ernest? Yeah, you know, there's some really wild stories um, that come up in the book. And, you know, I try to be as respectful as possible. But these stories, you know, some of them feel like, you know, true crime stories that you watch on, um, you know, how, uh, cable TV. So there was a black man in Cleveland in the 1970s named Ernest Hilliard who wanted to get a McDonald's franchise. And so there was a speculation that operated throughout his neighborhood that he was shot and killed um, in July, on July 4th, and some people believe that it was because he was pushing this issue of trying to get a black-owned McDonald's. Now, that might seem outrageous to us, but, you know, in this time period, it was so financially lucrative to franchise a McDonald's, and McDonald's wasn't just another business. For a lot of black communities, it was a sign of a conflict about control. And so after he is killed, the community kind of gathers and they start boycotting McDonald's in Cleveland. This is all happening when Carl Stokes, the first black mayor of Cleveland, is trying to run for re-election. And it gets really messy because there's a boycott, there's, you know, accusations that black people aren't being respected and black um, self-determination isn't being understood. 
There's also this issue of this unsolved homicide, and what also happens is that a local figure who, you know, might be described as shady as well, he appears, and he might be doing a little grifting and trying to negotiate this McDonald's deal. And the reason why I put this in the book is, like, this is how high stakes all this was. Mm-hmm. You know, this is mm-hmm. how important this was, and people were just, you know, acting up over, <laughs> you know, over can we, get, can we get the power to have this business because this business for us represents a kind of opportunity that has been cut off from us and a hope that maybe, just maybe, this could be, you know, the thing that we all need. I mean, it goes back again to the mighty dollar. I mean, one of the stories you were talking about, one of the black owners, he he was able to make $65,000, I think, in like the first um, month or something, some crazy amount of money. Um, And he was told he was only, he was going to make a good amount, but not that amount. And even he, he, his store surprised McDonald's uh, in um, how much money he was able to make. Uh, another crazy story you talk about, and, and when you mentioned just now control, they were supposedly bullying the staff and using lie detector tests. What what were they lying about? I mean, you're selling hamburgers. You know, what? You know, there, you know, all of this felt so high stakes because you know businesses were definitely, um, you know businesses were definitely being targeted and boycotted. And there was this kind of intrigue of an unsolved murder. And there was also this sense about, you know, like, you know, I think that we have understood the roots of America as um, incredibly violent. But I don't think people realize how in different periods of time, particularly the late 60s and early 70s, how the threat of violence loomed large in communities in the form of bombing and, you know, the kind of idea that people were targets over these community issues. And so, you know, people, people got very nervous. And for these white franchise owners who had made good money in black communities, they were willing to walk because they knew McDonald's would support them in moving to the suburbs. And so that was always an option for white franchise owners, and that was not the option for black franchise owners. You know, you talk about uh, McDonald's as the main franchise, but there were other franchises owned by black people. You talk about Mahalia Jackson, Muhammad Ali, um, James Brown. Why did theirs not succeed like McDonald's? So, you know, there that was – the trend. It's so funny because you see in the, you know, the 70s particularly, all of these really famous people and they would lease their likeness and image to these companies that would turn, you know, turn them into a brand. So like Mahalia Jackson had her glory fried chicken, Muhammad Ali had his hamburgers, but what you discover is they didn't actually own those businesses. They were leasing their image to businesses that were often white-owned that were trying to capture the desire for people to buy black as well as try to give this image that you could support your community by supporting these businesses. I mean, franchising was so popular as a way to extend wealth. And the other thing that was done in this experimental phase of franchising 
is that people would um, create these franchises and they would say that your church or your community center could enter franchising and then they could reinvest the profits into the community. And so people really saw this as kind of a lifesaver. They saw the success of McDonald's and they thought maybe with these black-owned brands we could replicate it. But something that I show in my book, you know, these, these brands could never compete because McDonald's had the amount of capital as well as the brand power that, you know, mm. put them light years ahead of these other brands. And we see versions of this, right, today. Like, you know, someone wants to do a black-owned X or Y or Z, and it doesn't survive. And the unfortunate part is, like, black people get blamed for it. Oh, we don't support our, you know, businesses. But the reality is is that, you know, these businesses are so outmatched in terms of capital and investment when you look at these, um, you know, white-owned businesses, but especially when you yes. look at the legacy brands. Now, also, we talk in in the book. You talk about the Black Panther, and they were doing a lot for the community. Uh, the breakfast um, program that they had, and they were, you know, really helping kids. And they confronted McDonald's. Can you talk to the audience and tell them about that interaction, about the Black Panthers, and what happened? between McDonald's and, and the Black Panthers? Yeah, you know, this is maybe one of my favorite stories from the book. The Black Panther Party for Self-Defense in Portland, Oregon, um, you know, they approached a McDonald's franchise in their community and said, hey, you know, like, can you donate to our free breakfast program? Can you be part of this effort that was very much a signature of their program, feeding kids, and this is before the national um, school lunch and national food program had been implemented. So there were such inconsistencies in kids getting food at school. And McDonald's refuses, and this creates a lot of community tension. And then there's a bombing at that McDonald's, and the Black Panther Party is accused of the bombing, but there's a lot of reasons to kind of wonder if they actually were involved in it. But all of this is to say, like, Again, maybe from today's perspective, we're like, okay, that's a lot. But these programs are so vital for community. And I think, you know, in the 70s, black communities were so tired of being, um, you know, disrespected, of taken for granted, and there was no kind of exchange between the business community and local people. And so this conflict in Portland, again, um, you know, is part of my um, goal in the book is just to show like how high stakes and how important this fast food brand was in terms of understanding the dynamics of power, you know, in this period of time. You talk about black capitalism. What's the difference between Mm -hmm. black capitalism and just regular old capitalism? Well, I think the distinction with black capitalism is it's really trying to make a case that through material accumulation, through the operation of business, through, you know, these financial investments that black people can advance their access to power and their access to opportunity that is not being delivered to them. So it isn't just owning a business for your own sake. It's also being very much um, using that business and using that business success um, to then – you know, make a case for your rights, make a case for your ability to govern your own community. And, you know, 
my position is that's a really, really, really um, difficult proposition. I think it's a difficult pathway to try to secure power because, as my book points out, you know, black folks can own businesses and make a lot of money, but it doesn't necessarily, you know, close that gap that is so, you know, prevalent. One of the things, and, and you wrote a book about girls, and I love, I'm a feminist. I'm, I'm not afraid to say that. And, and, and even if I was a man, I'd still be a feminist. But <laughs> but anyways, uh, one of the things that surprised me, girls, women, weren't allowed to work in the McDonald's. Can you tell why that? Why was that? Yeah, you know, it's at, a certain, at a certain thing. point in time. Sorry, at a certain point. Yeah, you know, um, a lot of people credit the black franchise owners for bringing women back into the restaurants. Um, I don't know if that's entirely accurate, but this is what I do know. You know, when the McDonald's brothers were getting really successful and they were seeing, um, you know, just the real um, benefits of their system of delivering food, of you know, speed and service. Um, they got rid of car hops, you know, the young women on roller skates who would deliver food because they said they flirted with the boys and they got in the way. And so the early McDonald's setup was very much, you know, young men um, in sparkling white outfits cooking the food and serving the food fast, right? Not a time to socialize, just get the food out. Um, but what eventually happens when the black franchise owners start to open their businesses they believe that they need the best workers in the community and people who can be trustworthy and people who, you know, they, they know can be consistent. And so they start to turn to young black women to work in the stores. And one um, black woman I met who, for this, when I was researching the book, had worked at McDonald's as a young woman. And she said, you know, I was there during the time that it was weird to see a black woman as a manager of McDonald's. Like there were no places for us, and it was working for a black franchise owner that she was able to rise through the ranks. There's other uh, women that you talk about in the book. One of them is a wife of a franchise owner, and she was trying to open a franchise, uh, the wife of Griffith, um, I believe that's his name, Griffith. And can you tell the audience what happened with that uh, and her struggles trying to open a franchise, being married to a franchise owner of McDonald's? You know, it's, so, um, you know, it's so hard to think about, you know, this time period because, you know, things have changed so much. But, you know, one of the conflicts between a black franchise owner and McDonald's that I cover is one of a man named Charles Griffith, whose wife wants to open a Popeye's. McDonald's says that, you know, she's violating a non-compete argument, and there's this big back and forth, accusations of racial discrimination. And, you know, franchising within the same family can get very complicated. Um, you know, you know, the question at that case is, is Popeye's a competitor to McDonald's? You know, you could argue no because they're, they're selling different types of food. But I think it gets into something um, deeper about, you know, how much these enterprises are family affairs, especially for black franchise owners, who their franchise is usually their primary business, that, you know, when I met a group of black franchise owners, you know, their wives were like, we're just as much owners as our husbands because we sacrifice, we do a lot of work to support them in this business enterprise. And a lot of, um, you know, those early black women in that system, they started out as spouses and their spouse passes away or passes the business to them. And they kind of experienced, you know, that 
that world a little differently. But, you know, there's a, there's a lot of, like, I don't know, juicy stories in the book. It's funny, you know, after writing it, you know, someone said, like, there's a lot of drama in here. I was like, yeah, there is a lot of drama. I mean, it could be a movie almost. I know it's a historical, you know, nonfiction book, but some of these stories definitely could uh, made into a movie, just that one little chapter <laughs> in and of itself. You know, I could see that. You know, we're running close to time. So let me just ask you, what was your first experience with McDonald's? Oh, my gosh. So I'm a child of the 80s. So I was at McDonald's all the time. You know, I was talking to someone recently, and before we all had cell phones, especially as teenagers, McDonald's was the spot you would, like, meet so you could go out and do something, you know, like on the bus or the train growing up in Chicago. So I used to have my birthday parties there. I used to have, you know, um, you know, after school we were allowed to go to McDonald's. Um, we would order – everyone would order, like, a large fry, and then we'd put it out on the tray and eat. I mean – my mom and I would go after church. I mean, it, McDonald's played a very strong um, role in my life. And I wrote this book not to, like, take down McDonald's, but to understand the ways that black people experience institutions in really distinct ways. And that when, mm-hmm. you know, we think about interventions in terms of food and health and we say, okay, you know, we would prefer different behaviors I always want to say, well, sometimes it's not just about the food. It's about the infrastructure and the world that's built around this food and the world in which we have to make our choices about what to eat and how to live. Definitely. Well, I'm going to be giving away some copies of your book, and I want to thank you for coming on this morning, waking up. I know most people sleep in on Saturdays, um, don't cook, and go to McDonald's. I have a 10-month-old baby. There is no sleeping in at this house. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. God bless you. I remember my daughter being little. Yes, you wake up whenever they wake up, and, and you go to sleep when they're <laughs> sleeping because otherwise – or you try to do a lot of stuff, and then you're still exhausted. So God God bless you uh, taking care of the baby. Um, I, I hope that this, um, you know, makes an impact, and you can come back on. I know you're working on some other – some other stories. So again, thank you very much for coming on this morning. Thank you. You have a great weekend. Okay. You too. Bye-bye. Okay. Bye-bye. Thank you everybody for tuning in. Um, I just want to let you know that you can follow me on Twitter at joy keys. You can also check me out on Facebook Saturday mornings with joy keys and on Instagram Saturdays with joy keys. You can also um, check us out on Spotify, Stitcher, iTunes, iHeartRadio, Amazon Music, as well as here at Blog Talk Radio. You guys have a great weekend, and stay tuned. I'm going to be speaking with musician Jason Marcellus. Stigma may not directly affect you, but it harms the one in five Americans living with mental health conditions. Which prevents millions of people from seeking help. So do yourself and everyone a favor. Go to CureStigma.org and get tested for stigma. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. 
No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.